0: Well, good evening. Peace be with you. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us on this fairly balmy Christmas Eve uh, to sing and to celebrate and to rejoice in the fact that God has come to us. He hasn't left us here on our own, but he has come to us. For the next few minutes, I want to open God's Word and look at the only account that we actually have of the birth of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of biblical texts that tell us about the events leading up to his birth, and a lot of texts that tell us about what happened right after, but there's actually only one passage, and it's in Luke chapter 2, that tells us of the actual birth of Jesus. And my goal tonight is really, it's pretty simple. I want to separate fact from fiction and tradition when it comes to the birth of Christ. There's a lot that surrounds the birth of Christ growing up. My family, we didn't go to church very often. And so my dad's preferred method for teaching us about God was having us watch old Charlton Heston movies. Uh, And so that's where I learned a lot. And then you, you pick up some things from songs and from culture and other Christmas movies and TV shows. And I think at times the story of God coming to us, it can get lost or it can get distorted. And I'm telling you, that what the Bible tells us about the coming of Christ is utterly fascinating. And it doesn't need any embellishment. It just needs to be received because it's such a powerful text. And so I'd like to ask you, if you're able to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the things that that hits us in the very first verse is that this story, this account of Christ's birth, it doesn't happen in a fairy tale. It happens here on this earth because Luke doesn't begin his account by saying once upon a time or a long time ago. Instead, he tells us back in the times of Caesar Augustus, when he issued a decree that a census should go out, that's when this story takes place. Now, Caesar Augustus, that's a name for most of us on a page, but he's actually a very important figure, and he was one of the most important figures in history up, to that, up until that point. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Of Julius Caesar and after a bloody and brutal civil war Augustus emerged as the sole ruler of Rome and he's the one who turned Rome from being a Republic and he turned it into an Empire he was the first Roman Emperor in history now Augustus was loved by the Romans they loved him they, they viewed him as the one who would end all wars. They, would, they talked about him like he was the greatest leader who ever lived. There's actually a calendar in modern-day Turkey that dates back to about the 9th century BC in which they're talking about Caesar Augustus and they hail him as the savior of the world. goes on, that calendar. It says, the birthday of the god Augustus marked the beginning of good news, gospel for the world. To everyone and anyone who lived in that day, there was no one more powerful than Caesar Augustus. And Luke tells us that this great ruler, this powerful ruler, he commissioned a census be done of all of the people under his rule, which was a whole lot of the known world back then. And the goal of it was really simple. He wanted to levy taxes. Rome was growing into this massive superpower, and they needed to tax the people to help pay for the military. And among those people were two teenagers from a religious sect that was kind of on the fringes of society, a religious sect that wasn't, didn't hold a place of honor at all in Rome, and a religious sect that looked at Rome as an oppressive regime. The man's name was Joseph, as we know, and his bride-to-be, was her name was Mary. And Luke tells us that because... Caesar told them, they had to do this, told everyone, that Mary and Joseph, they make a 70-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's hometown. And we know that they were poor, and so they probably they might have had a donkey, but they probably made this journey on foot. Eight months pregnant, 70 miles on foot. And then without much fanfare, Luke tells us that while they're in Bethlehem, so that this foreign government can count them and then tax them, the time came for the baby to be born. Luke actually only gives us one verse describing the birth. He tells us that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him, for them in the inn. It's one short verse. There are a few details that we can learn from here. One, he tells us that Mary, no one else but Mary, wrapped her baby boy in cloths. That means that Mary and Joseph were probably alone, that there weren't doctors or midwives there. Luke also tells us that there was no room at the inn. Bethlehem wasn't a very big town. There's probably only one inn and that inn was full. And so Mary gave birth, most likely in a stable, maybe in a cave, gave birth someplace. What we do know for sure is she gave place some pers- place that she wouldn't normally give birth to a child. And after giving birth, she wrapped her son and then she laid him in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. Those are the details we have. Now we can sentimentalize the nativity scene with smiling cows and oxen, the indirect lighting, everyone's kind of glowing and everything's clean and nice. But when you actually pay attention to the details of the story, it's brutal. It's brutal. Being pushed around like pawns by a foreign oppressive government, Jesus is born into extreme poverty to a teenage mom and a blue-collar dad with hardly a penny to their name. I mean, Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, but they were so poor that he didn't have the connections or the money to find a single room in which for his wife to give birth. Four walls and a roof. Couldn't find it. Every detail we have about the birth of Christ points to poverty, obscurity, and indignity. Now, here's what I find fascinating. Luke, as he's writing the story, he wants to tell us about the birth of Christ, but he's not just recording facts. He is doing that, but he's also trying to teach us in the midst of conveying those facts to us, he's trying to teach us something. And Luke, what he does, as he's composing this narrative, he deliberately is drawing this contrast between Caesar Augustus and Jesus Christ. Caesar, he's... Exactly what we think of when we think of a great leader. Someone with power, someone who's admired, someone who has money, someone who has a vast army. Jesus, on the other hand, is nothing like we would think of when we think of a leader. Judging from his birth, Jesus seems no different from the countless millions of other people who were born in poverty and obscurity. And so this forces us to ask the question, why, why did God send his son in this way? If God can speak creation into existence, and I believe he can and he did, if he can speak creation into existence with a word, surely he could have arranged the circumstances so that his son would have a warm bed to sleep in his first night on this earth. Surely, Jesus' mission was to push back darkness and evil. Surely God could have, you know, sent the angels that will appear to the shepherd in just a few verses after this, the vast host, the army of angels. Surely he could have brought them in with Jesus when he arrived, and they could have gone straight to the heart of the Roman Empire. But that didn't happen. And one of the great mysteries of the universe is that when God became man, he spent his first night in a barn. Why? Why did he come in poverty? Why did he come in weakness? Why did he come in obscurity as a child? That's the question of Christmas. It's the question of Christmas. Why? And to answer that question, we have to ask another question. Why did Jesus come? And we know he came to deal with the problems of this world. He came to fix and to right what was wrong. And so that leads to the last question. Okay, what's wrong with this world that led God when he decided to intervene to come in this way and not in power and strength and might? What's wrong with the world? Regardless of your own faith convictions, I think the one thing everyone in this room can agree upon is that something is wrong with this world. We watch the news, we hear the stories, you live long enough, and you you will cry out, this isn't fair, this isn't right, this doesn't make sense. What is wrong with the world? I think this shared sense that something is deeply wrong here, that's what fuels so much of the passion that we have for politics. And I want you to hear me. Politics can be useful, and they can help in making the world a more livable place. But so often we put such deep hope in our politics because we are, we are hoping that what's wrong with the world can be made right. We look at, I mean, campaign season's coming up. I'm sure everyone's excited about that, excited for political ads. Pay attention to the promises that are made. Everyone's going to have all the health care they could ever need. Free education for everyone, I will come and heal and unite our broken and divided country. All sound great, and I'm for them all. But they seem a bit far-fetched. And when I was 20, I used to buy those promises, hook, line, and sinker. You get older, you learn to receive those promises with a fair bit of skepticism because you know if you live long enough, you know that if you put too much hope in any human being, they're going to let you down. And you know that the problems of this world are not just a lack of education or a lack of health care, as real as those things are. The problem goes deeper. And this is where I find the Bible to be the most realistic and honest book in the world. Because the Bible tells us that the real problem in our world, the problem underneath all the problems, is not just out there with those people it's in here with every single one of us. The real problem is that all of us we're all, in, you could say, infected with this disease called sin. And sin's not just bad things that we do. Sin is this posture of the human heart that we've both inherited and participated in. And it goes back to the very beginning of human history. When our great-grandma and great-grandpa, instead of living in fellowship with the living God, they turned from him and said, we want to do it our own way. We want to be the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own soul. We want to put ourselves at the center of the universe. And when that happened, creation was spun into chaos. Think of our solar system. There's something that's supposed to be in the center. It's the sun, Then you have planets and you have moons. Imagine if our planet said, you know what? I don't like the sun being at the center. I want to be in the center. What kind of chaos would reign in our solar system? That's the chaos that reigns in our world. At the root of all sin is this pride. C.S. Lewis, he describes it well when he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. It's pride. It's not maybe what you think of when you think of sin. The worst of the worst is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Now, when you understand that pride sits at the root of all sin and that pride really sits at the root of all of the problems in our world, that's when you can begin to understand why God came the way he did. Since pride is at the root of all the corruption, evil, and wickedness that's eating away at God's creation, it was only fitting that God would come in humility to bring redemption to his creation. At his birth, Jesus, in being poor, weak, fairly helpless, he transformed our understanding of power, of strength, and of the way to healing and wholeness. He challenged how we understand power. Most of us understand power as a brute force strength that can just make you bend. That's the kind of power that Caesar had. That's the kind of power that we love. And I think that's the kind of power that, you know, oftentimes religious people, they want God to come with shock and awe. Come with that kind of power. Just obliterate our enemies. Jesus Christ, he didn't come with that. That kind of power, sure, it can coerce, it can manipulate, it can strong arm you. But that kind of power doesn't actually bring about real, lasting, positive change. It just brings compliance. And if Jesus brought came in that kind of power he could have forced every knee to bend but it wouldn't have actually changed our hearts furthermore if Jesus Christ came with that kind of power if he came with brute force and decided he was going to wipe all evil from the face of the earth there would have been none of us left not one of us would remain standing and if you think that's unfair or an exaggeration, I would say you don't know the depths of your own soul. You don't know the anger, the rage, the jealousy, the envy, the lust, the selfishness that's buried in your own heart, just like it's buried in mine. And so Jesus Christ was sent by the Father, not in power as we understand power, but in humility, because he didn't come to break us. He came to be broken for us. In every detail surrounding the birth of Christ, it actually foreshadows his life and his death. At his birth, Jesus is placed in a manger because there's no place else for for him to lay his head. In Luke 9, Jesus says, as a grown-up, as an adult, as a leader of this movement, he says, Listen, birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man, he has no place to lay his head. Here in Bethlehem, Jesus is essentially rejected by the people. They can't even make room for him at the inn. On the night of his betrayal, he's rejected by his closest friends, and he's dragged outside the city to suffer alone. At his birth, you know his family's so poor that like they didn't have a, a cute onesie from Carter's to put him in, and so Mary had to find some strips of cloth and tear them and wrap him in it to kind of give him some sense of dignity as a child. Well, at his death, he's stripped of his clothing, and he dies naked. No dignity. Viewed as one filled with shame. And the reason Jesus Christ endured all of that, the poverty, the obscurity, the indignity, was so that from his birth onward, he might experience the rejection that we deserve because of our sin. He might reap what we've sown. See, instead of forcing us to obey with threats of wrath and judgment, he took our judgment so that he might give us nothing but grace. The Apostle Paul sums it up well in 2 Corinthians 8 when he tells us, he reminds us, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is that we don't have to get our act together. The message of Christmas is not that we have to fix ourselves. The message of Christmas is that God has intervened, not with an iron fist, but with humility and with grace, so that he might win us And save us. This message still reverberates across the nations. And even though Christ was born in obscurity, we can't help but note the irony, right? We name our dogs these days Caesar, but billions of people this night will worship Jesus around the world. It's a different kind of power, it's a better kind of power. And I want you to know if you are here and you're not a Christian, there's no hard sell. I do want you to know you can have peace with God today because the birth of Jesus changed everything. It's available to you, and it is free. If you're here and you are a Christian, my simple application for you, rejoice and rest in what God has done for you. Rejoice and rest in the grace he's shown to you. I'm going to pray in just a minute, and then after I do, uh, some ushers will be around to light your candles, and they'll light some, and then it'll spread across the room Help light the candles next to you. Try not to light the kid's hair next to you. It seems to happen every year. At least one kid loses a little bit of their hair. Um, But the reason we do this is because our world, it so often feels like it's filled with darkness. And we do this to remind ourselves that in Christ, a light has pierced the darkness and it's spreading through God's people. And we rejoice in the hope that one day the light will come in fullness and expel all darkness once and for all. And so as we sing this last song, let us celebrate that truth. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.